The following podcast is brought to you by OpenG Records. OpenGRecords.com is your home for podcasts like this, great recordings of new and traditional classical music, and thoughts and blogs about music, art, and life. You know, as a classical musician, I find as I get older and older that being a working musician is really a sign of success unto itself. I suspect it's the same across many endeavors, artistic and otherwise. In this podcast you're about to listen to, I talk to the fine actor Jason Kravitz about his craft, about how he auditions for things, about how he broke into the business and how he got interested in acting in the first place. Jason is what I would consider to be the epitome of a working actor. He's probably best known as a cast member on The Practice, for which he and his castmates earned a nomination for an Emmy. But a small slice of his IMDb page shows that he's also been on Michael J. Fox Show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Law and Order, Grey's Anatomy, 30 Rock, Everyone Loves Raymond, many, many other shows. He's been in movies such as The Adjustment Bureau, Sweet November, and The Stepford Wives. And on Broadway, he's been in The Drowsy Chaperone, as well as the Woody Allen written, produced, and directed, Relatively Speaking, which I saw him in and which was hysterical. So without any further ado, Jason Kravitz. Okay, so I'm in my man cave here with actor, writer, dad, all-around good guy, and sneaky, quiet poker player, <laughs> Jason Kravitz. <laughs> you, you give me too much credit for I, all of the above. <laughs> I don't think so. I, you know, I, like uh, a little bit of fair warning. The reason I that I know you originally is that we, we do play in a, a semi-regular poker Yes. Uh, game and you are you're just like you could tell nice little stories and you lull everybody to sleep and they're like oh look i just raked in 80 bucks oh yeah <laughs> hey let me tell you something else it's, you uh, know my tell is that i get quiet <laughs> <laughs> my tell is that i'm paying attention exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um you know i always like to talk to people uh, about how they get started and and, and 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 interested in what they do so let's go like back to your childhood uh, where where did you grow up? Uh, I, I grew up since I was eight. I grew up in Rockville, Maryland, right outside of D.C. Uh, I was born in New Jersey and lived in a couple of places there. But my formative years were the 20 or so years I spent uh, in and around uh, Rockville. And did you start uh, acting early? Were you... I, <laughs> you know... Uh, my mother will tell you I came out of the womb and went hello. That's what everyone. I was going to ask. That's that was pretty much how I was born. <laughs> Were you a ham like at three and oh, four? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Just like doing scenes or craving attention and craving attention in all sorts of ways, but mainly by doing funny voices and bouncing around and and singing and you know we got a lot of uh, you know I have two sisters and a brother and uh, I where was are you in that second in line? I was the first boy, second in line, and we're all separated by about two years, so it's pretty close. Uh, group and my brother and I were even closer space than that so it created a a, a real rivalry but also a, a, a comrade when it came to this type of stuff so yeah. we performed together and kind of pushed each other competitively to to do more and get the most attention uh, my <laughs> older sister was, yeah my older sister and my younger sister were both involved and still are to some extent but more than an amateur so you had like a two year younger partner in crime for yeah most of your... who annoyed the hell out of me <sighs> who i picked on and then also we harmonize really well and we have the same vaudevillian sense of humor and what does he do now he's also an actor uh and a teacher and a singer and uh lots of things lives in not too far away did your uh your parents 
seeing that you were bent towards being a ham or being sort of uh, uh, overtly uh, attention-seeking, did they put you in any sort of acting or singing classes? Or Sure. I mean, they didn't... Uh, they encouraged it, I, I, but I wouldn't say they, like, pushed it really hard. They, they, they didn't discourage it, that's for sure. We really enjoyed performing. We performed with cousins. We performed in mm-hmm. the house. Mm-hmm. And then my father was... Um, an IBM guy, so and my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but there was always music, musical instruments around. Piano, especially, was there, and my father uh, did community theater. Who played the piano home. in your house? Um, my mom a little bit, but it was my older sister who really got into piano lessons, <clears throat> and she still is a, a an accompanist and a and a um, a music director for you know amateur productions mm-hmm. in the DC area. Uh, but we uh, we. My dad started doing community theater when I was young, and I would always be at the theater from as far back as seven years old. <clears throat> I remember going to see him in shows or participate, and, and, you know, I started hanging out. My whole family did. It was a family event. There were several other families involved. So I was doing it at an early age. So you would have, like, your own sort of community, literal community theater. It really was, yeah. but it was, it, was, it was a good community theater. There were several good ones in that area, decent quality productions. Mm. But by the time I was 15, I had done everything you could do in the theater. I hung lights, and I pulled nails out of boards, and I swept, <laughs> and I performed on stage, and I performed in the pit playing guitar, and I <laughs> ran lights and sound, yeah. and... Did the box office? I so you're like kind of what we <laughs> would call know? like a gym rat if you were like it a really basketball. Was. So yeah. I grew up in that experience. It was really fun to go to the theater with the family. Did you have like a <clears throat> seminal performance or uh, uh, that you either were in or saw that you were like, okay, now I thought I liked this, but now I know I got to do this. Hmm. What? What was? It? Was there a seminal performance? No, I think every performance for me was a seminal performance. Uh, everything I saw, everything that I I did. I mean, I used to love television. Was the big, you know the draw, so that was what I was paying attention to, and everything from uh, uh, Red Buttons to uh, the Carol Burnett Show to <laughs> um, uh, anything Billy Crystal did in the mm-hmm. late seventies and early eighties, I, I was fascinated by. Especially, I mean, maybe not soap, but you know, <laughs> <clears throat> probably wasn't allowed to watch it. But, but a lot of the other stuff, you know, when, when when someone was asking me recently about imitations, and I said, yeah, I do imitations. I always did imitations of certain people and things. And, but most of my imitations growing up were imitations of Billy Crystal's imitations, yeah, right? Sammy Davis Jr. and you know Joe Franklin and all mm-hmm. those people were all. You know, I learned them from Billy Crystal. Right. It's like everybody does Dana Carvey's George H.W. Bush. Exactly. You know, it's just like exactly. it's been filtered through that. It's pretty much it. So you were basically like, I don't want to say destined, but there was never any moment where you're like, uh, maybe I'll do something else with my life. Or were you always just like, <clears throat> man, I think I'll just continue doing this. No, I always did it and I always liked it. And um, when I was 13, my mom got me an audition for this place called the Educational Film Center in Washington, D.C. They were looking for people, young people, and I auditioned. How old were you then? 13. You were born in what? 67. Mm -hmm. So it was 1980. They gave me, uh, they called me in a couple weeks later for an audition for a television show called Powerhouse, which was a PBS series, Um, and I got the part, and it was uh, shot in Washington, D.C., 16 episodes before 
uh, Reagan pulled the funding for the whole thing, but um, it was I was doing television, and so I was going into seventh grade with uh, that's amazing having my friends watch me on TV and already with the fascination of what had appeared on TV. Oh yeah, and then there you are. I was very in my element. Did you like uh, watch yourself? I mean, were you, sure. I mean, were you? happy with it did, did you yeah, read no, critical I, at all at that age not at that age now i can't watch myself kind of very <laughs> even your you can't watch past stuff or you can't watch present well stuff watching or... past stuff like when i was 13 right. i laugh because it's just so ridiculous <laughs> what i was doing i was very naive and very over the top how but, can you not be of course so but i look at it now i'm like oh wow you were destined uh, for you know a lot of lessons in how to act. <laughs> but I had a lot of gumption. You know I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably something that, that most performers of any sort have at that age. There's sort of, my friend X is a very high-level violin player, and he won huge competitions when he was 13 and 14, and he's just like, you don't realize that you're supposed to be scared at all. You don't realize that it's hard yet. You haven't, you haven't had the chance to fail. No, and I was also really cocky, I think, looking <laughs> right. back. I think I was... Not cocky in a mean way, but I think that I just thought everybody should be great at what they do, and we're all great, and right. I was positive, and uh, I'm sure that was masking some sort of like deep insecurity and, and pain. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure where, but it was there, and uh, I just, I really like, that was my way of getting full attention, was putting myself really out there, and, and uh, you know, I remember ridiculous things that I would do. Like, looking back, I'm, I'm embarrassed for the younger me. <laughs> like what? Well, let's see. In um, in sixth grade, I remember there was a, uh, a talent show, and uh, everybody was doing their things, dancing or doing Kenny Rogers the Gambler or something like that. <laughs> and, and I did uh, uh, an imitation of Al Jolson's April Shower. <laughs> Minus the blackface, thank you very much. <laughs> all right, all yes. right. Yes, but I was doing the April showers, and they liked it so much they had me do it on the morning announcements the next day, and I was happy to do it. Yeah, Completely of course. oblivious to any kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> reaction from my peers, and uh, and if they were, I was that kid that if people were making fun of me, I was that kid who you're just jealous, you're jealous, right? So I never haters gonna hate. Me. But then years later. I had a friend of mine say, yeah, we hated you in fifth grade, yeah. sixth grade. You were just a real kiss-ass. And I'm like, oh, really? I Turns no out idea. I was a douche. Turns out I was that guy. <laughs> I think we're all kind of that guy. It's hard to not be that guy when you're 13. I mean, you're just yeah. a, you're an id with well, listen, a to penis my now, now, you know? My son is... <laughs> He's like talks about how awesome he is. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, keep doing that. Yeah, keep my, talking about how awesome you are to your friends. They'll my love friend's that. got a, like a ten year old who's just like occasionally he's like, my life is good, man. And you're just like, okay, keep that up, buddy. You enjoy that. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I wish that I would have seen you. It seems like it would have been my 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 era because I was born in '71, but like uh, you know, <clears> in 1980, I was way into Jesus, and PBS is probably like from Satan or something. Yeah, like probably because so. they're all liberals. <laughs> yes. Um, so after that, uh, was that a, a brief flash of sort of what we would call professional, like, you know? Yeah. When, after that finished, uh, I didn't, I did some more little things pretty much through the educational film center, but, uh, I stayed, I liked being a home guy, you know, I liked staying around. So it wasn't like I suddenly went, I need to be in big time shows. Right. Um, I went back to middle school. I went back to high school. I started doing theater in high school. And 
community theater as well. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the whole experience of high school and performing. I learned a lot and got even cockier, I think. And then um, I ended up getting a, a, a full ride to my local school, Maryland. In yeah, Florida. yeah. Which, uh, welcome to the Big Ten. Welcome to Uh-oh. the Big Ten of Maryland. It's yeah, going to be a real learning It's a bloodbath for that. <laughs> um, so that was a full scholarship for to get in the acting program? To the theater program, yeah. yeah. But I was a good student, too, so I also got some credits. To, uh, you know, I did well going to theater, and I had all this money saved up from powerhouse days, <laughs> which I spent on a car years later, which was just foolish. But um, they... Uh, what kind of car? Oh, I can't. It was like a Dodge. Uh, it wasn't even a. It was like a set, pretend cool car that <laughs> ate too much gas and was supposed to look like a cooler right. car than it was. Right, but with had a four cylinder uh, engine. It's in it. just it was... sad that I bought that thing. It was <laughs> never my car. Um, but the um, yeah, and I, I went to Maryland for four years, and I uh, really uh, discovered a lot more about myself as an actor and um, about the creative process because Maryland is not a conservatory. I didn't even look. You know, people were like, well, why don't you go to NYU or right. Juilliard or Yale or why don't mm-hmm. you look into these other programs, Northwestern, or, um, uh, Carnegie Mellon. There's all these great... Or go west. And right. I was like, uh, my sister went to Maryland. Yeah. I liked... I was scared to go too far away from home. I didn't want to go through the process of looking at colleges. I was like, oh, I just got a free ride. Okay. I'll, yeah, Maryland's cool. Yeah, that's fine yeah. with me. Right. It's home. It's I know people. So, um, so I did, and uh, it was uh, I, it was great in that because it, I mean, yeah, a conservatory is a great thing to have under your belt in some ways because it gives you um, an entree into the world quicker. You know, right. you have a showcase, or people, agents might see you in right. New York. But at not Maryland, to mention the connections of the people who are also doing that. Right. Yeah. yeah. You have the mafia. You know. Right. You have your your school's mafia, and Maryland doesn't have much of a mafia to say <laughs> speak of. <laughs> at least not in the theater department. Um, but it's more of a small street gang. <clears throat> yes, it's more of a small street gang. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can count on them in the yeah. inch. Watch out for the terrapins. That's They're right. tougher than they look. Trust me, we're the dumb ones. <laughs> <laughs> we we had an improv group in college uh, that I helped found, and uh, still going twenty. Seven nice. years later, what's it called? It's called Erasable Ink, and I, we had a reunion. They they threw us a reunion a couple of years ago, which was like shocking to talk to kids twenty five years younger than you that are, you know, treating you like a god because right. you started this group. And you're right. like, listen, we didn't. We were do just it. doing something. We didn't do it for you. Right. We didn't get laid and get, you know <laughs> get attention. Um, but uh, but Maryland was was good because it was uh, there wasn't enough to do. They gave a few class. There were plenty of good teachers, mm-hmm. and I learned a lot from the actual school and the productions. But I also had a lot of free time, and for someone like me, yeah. it was like I got to do stuff more for more attention. Where's the performing? What's yeah, going yeah. on? My nickname was uh, "There's a Stage." <laughs> hey, there's a stage. We can do that. That can be a stage. Here we go. Here we go. One, two, three, four. <laughs> uh, so I started to have to come up with my own work. So I started creating. An improv group or a performance night or a directing Were project. You writing? Um, I wasn't writing as much. I was uh, directing and kind of producing mm. as much as anything else. Just in like 
Maryland College, just College, College Park. Yeah, College Park. Yeah. So just just in that venue, mm-hmm. um, but it served me well for years to come. The idea that if there's no work, you make your work. Right, and also to be well rounded and to not just be able to be a single blade. Yeah, I or just something do like dramas. Or right, something. I only act seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so you graduate, and like every other graduate, <clears throat> did you face the moment of okay, now I what? Now not I not make... really. It was a really weird transition. First of all, I still had money in the bank, so I wasn't going to be destitute. Although, you know, I was never great with money, and I always, was, as an actor, you're always terrified of not having any money. Right. But um, I knew I was going to live at home for a couple years, or at least I didn't know how long. I just knew I had a place and I can go home. So I lived in my parents' basement, and um, I started auditioning right after college. They have it in D.C., they have a. Uh, uh, a kind of a mass audition where all the theaters send a representative and, and people can come into a monologue and they'll write your name down if they like you and take your resume if they want to use it for something that season. And I got called almost immediately to be part of a young person's uh, performing at schools situation. Yeah, yeah. So that was helpful. Um, and were you, like, uh, what level schools were you performing in? All, all uh, elementary, high school, middle school. Like, was this improv or? No, these were written shows. The The, the company that I was working with uh, was a company called Roundhouse Theater Company. Mm-hmm. And Roundhouse used to be, it isn't anymore, but it used to be one of the only theaters in the country um, that was owned by the government in some way, run by the government. It was owned by the county, Montgomery County. I see. And uh, which was a very forward-thinking, progressive thing. Um, although financially, it didn't work out, and mm. they ended up Shop. leaving that arrangement. Right? Yeah, nothing like being an actor. You audition, and then you have to fill out a form as a contractor explaining why you were the best person for the money for the job. It was oh uh, wow, but, okay. But uh, Roundhouse, uh, they because they were working with the government, they had a mandate to do um, programs in the schools uh, that were teachable mm-hmm. things about alcohol or drugs or about racism or about and they had really good artists that wrote really good pieces I ended up writing for them as well mm. and directing but for the first few years I was just getting up at six o'clock in the morning and getting in a van driving to the elementary school oh, <laughs> I did you know a job one? very similar to that for two years out of college myself and it was also four schools mostly elementary though but we were trying to bring like <clears throat> I had to act, believe it or not, and dance, wow. believe it or not, while playing my clarinet, believe what, it or not. What shows were you doing? Newly composed things oh that we would God. have a composer and like a, a a writer and a choreographer, and we would all spend a month like at, at, at like a retreat and create like an hour long thing together. For what area? All over the place. All over the country. Yeah, we did like oh. two hundred shows a year and shit. It was like, and we would do everything from like playing in like a, a, a like a a gymnasium in Kentucky, and then like. I have a picture there. We're playing in front of the Boston Symphony. It was like a really weird, broad swath of things. But the same what, thing. What, what company was that through? It was called Tales and Scales. Tales and Scales, ladies and gentlemen. Tales and Scales. And what's crazy is that we were there. There's like four really gnarly players. I mean, really badass. So and, and so we found ourselves doing these things for kids. And it's like, after a while, you're like, okay, this is awesome. But I don't know. For me, after a while, I was like, I could, I got to go back to the land of adulthood. For uh, I get it. No, I get to as well. Um but I was so I was working with them, and then at night I got very lucky and had a, a graduate student uh, that I went to school with had become the head of a theater, and so she cast me in shows pretty quickly. And so this is also in the D.C. area. Or yeah, something? so six, so three, three months out of college, I had a day job and a night job, both of them paying 
pretty low, but I was living at home. Yeah. What do I know from? I was like, $100 a week? You're going to pay me $100? Oh, my God. Sweet. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so that was... Um, that was my so I didn't have that moment, and then I started working more and more in that area, and uh, became a, a company member at another theater as well at uh, at the Roundhouse Theater. I'm sorry, at uh, the Woolly Mammoth Theater, which is a great place to be involved uh, creatively. And I started getting known in that area um, and working pretty regularly. However, within that six year period after college and before I moved out of the, out of that area, I um, I definitely hit that wall of what am I doing? You know, right. what's the maximum I'm going to make living here in Washington D.C.? Right. What if I ever want to have a family and buy a house? How will I ever do that, making this bad theater money? And I don't have a, 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 a BFA, so I can't teach. You know, I just have a BA. I can't. You know, what am I going to do? And um, you know. Um, that was t- difficult to get through when I. So that, that's that's your postgraduate <clears throat> moment of what now? Yeah, it was about three years into performing, into mm-hmm. being busy. And I it think, was it was a financial ceiling. It was there was there an artistic ceiling as well? Or? No, I, artistically it was very fulfilling. Uh, I'm sure there's not as you know there's. I didn't realize there was much more uh, variety of things going on in different cities that I could be involved with, but. Mm. I was, it was almost like grad school for me, but working with professional right. actors. The actors in D.C., uh, for the most part, are incredibly talented people who kind of made the decision that they don't want to hustle it all the time. They want to work. Right. So they might have to get a second job recording books or doing industrials or teaching. What's in doing industrials? Industrials are in-house films for like, you know... The, GM safety films and yes, stuff. Yes, I've done those. I've done AT&T, you know, corporate training films. <laughs> I would I would like to see that. <laughs> oh, I've got, a, I got something I can show you. <laughs> uh, but they're internal things. They pay decently. They're union jobs. Jim, and, sexual harassment is not okay in the office. I've done those too. Uh, I actually did uh, ones for VD for colleges. <laughs> I did one for... Uh, I did one for the... the uh, insurance auto insurance company uh about how they test using safety dummies how they test different cars and well that sounds know. fascinating it was very fascinating <laughs> it's a geeky little character but that, those people are very they get to do all these different right. shows it's a constant that you're working <clears throat> you're working you're working on good stuff with right. really good people right um so i got to do shakespeare and moliere and people and that you develop like um, artistic Absolutely. relationships with on stage. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a yeah. very much a community. Even if you don't... I mean, there's so many people that I'm friends with from Washington, D.C. that I never worked with. You just know. Right. From going to the same bars or seeing their shows or knowing people who know them. And it's very contained. Um, it's gotten... <clears throat> it's gotten actually bigger in the 20 years since I've been gone. One of the few places that has expanded steadily even through recession they continue to grow build theaters new companies that have um that get well respected and do great work so that's an enormous amount of work to do to put that stuff together but that's what people do down there and it's yeah you kind of have to make it yourself in a way they do um so uh going now that you've had your holy shit moment uh, yeah. When do you find a foothold somewhere? Do you, you know, is there a is there a successful moment where you're able to like break out of that scene and go somewhere else? Yeah, 
Um, when I was 28, I had a friend that I respect who uh, has been there for a long time. And she said, why aren't you in New York? You should move. And I thought, why move? I'm busy. I'm working. I've got, you know, yeah, I might not make the big bucks, but as long as I'm steady, I might be able to, you know, and I can stay near home and I like the D.C. area. And um, I had a relationship, that, about a year-long relationship that ended. And I kind of looked around and I thought, what am I what am I doing? I could be here forever and never check anything else out. Because I could have been. I could have kept working company membership and just plugged right along. But um, something inside me was like, I'd already had an affinity for New York because um, my dad was born here and I lived in Jersey and I liked the Yankees and I liked <laughs> the Rangers and I had New York Yankees hats that I was right. wearing around D.C. And... Uh, I visited here, the first time I visited here as an adult, I, I felt like I recognized everybody mm -hmm. I saw. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this is my family up here. Right. Um, and then, of course, again, with the safety net stuff, my brother had moved up. And I was like, okay, well, I got somebody up there. That's cool. Okay. Um, that makes... Yeah. All right. So at 28, I decided to make the move, and I actually had to turn down uh, a pretty decent job in D.C. to do it. Cause... And did you come with any sort of anything in hand or did you just like I'm going to go to New York and well, see the, what I had in hand was now I wasn't I was committed to it yeah um, what I had in hand was uh, a decent resume uh, a good um, uh, audio reel for voiceover type things and one connection one connection one person who I knew in New York who said they would introduce me to their commercial agent so that's what I did and uh, I got in early with a commercial agent. And even though I didn't book anything for a long time, I was being sent on auditions a lot. So I, I felt see. like I was sort of part of the world. Um, you I, were in the rotation, at least. In the rotation. People, I got to, started to get to know people. I'm, they you saw know, you maybe a couple of times come yeah, through an audition. I mean, I'm not even talking about casting people as much as I started to get to know other actors. I see. And start to understand what the business was like. And then about four months after I moved up, uh, I had another friend who moved up about a month after I did. And uh, he and I together went to see a performance that um, somebody I knew from college was doing with a group called The Red Room. They called themselves Rumble in the Red Room. And literally it was these people whose mission was to do... Uh, they were all working on one-person shows. Character-based one-person shows. So they all were doing 10 minutes. Every Monday night, they had to bring in 10 minutes. No of more their character. Of their character or whatever they were working right. on. So we went to see them. And immediately, we both went, I want to do this. <laughs> I really want to do this. So I asked if I could get involved. And they said yes. And then brought him in as well. He brought, well, he came along and, and uh, started doing his stuff. And then we started doing stuff together. And it became this collective of about 12, 13 people. And it went from character-based um, one person show things to uh, just anything but it had to be character based it couldn't be like getting up and doing stand up it had to be something character based or musical or would interesting that, you know in a stand up kind of tip would, would it be an improv within a character or would this be stuff that had been written had like, to be written yeah I had see. to be written um, I mean I, I wrote one as a stand up once <laughs> oh, <laughs> the character okay. was a stand up um <laughs> But break that fifth wall. I don't right, know something like that. There's many walls. <laughs> you build the fourth wall and yeah. break it down again. Yes. Uh, 
and people brought in all sorts of stuff. And if the idea was to sign up for something on a Monday before, you know, that week to go on Monday and then you have to come up with something. Saturday Night Live kind of like... It was a forced creative yeah. experience. And sometimes it would be scenes and you'd invite other people from the group to, can you can read this for me? Can we just have one rehearsal before we do it? And people were always game. It was really a home, a creative home for a long time. And even though we weren't writing collectively, sometimes we wrote, a, you know, a couple of people at a time would get together and write. Um, it was a very supportive environment. Everybody wanted to help each other. We ran lights for each other. We performed with each other. And it was uh, it was a very exciting time. And so, like, contrary to the hyper-competitive <clears throat> yeah. kind of uh, stereotype, Rather, you found a, a sort of a family type of sure, and it has its dysfunctions over time, of course, as they <laughs> oh, all do. Yeah. But mostly, I'm still very close with a lot of those people um, because that was a really important time in all our lives. You know, yeah. I was probably the youngest at 29 that was doing it. Everybody else was probably in their mid 30s, early to mid 30s. Um, maybe some a little older, but some amazing material. Uh, came out of that that I think is some of the most brilliant stuff I've ever seen that has just this was pre-digital right it's media, just so out it's in all the ether just, somewhere we recorded it on high eight <laughs> somewhere somewhere there are tapes somewhere there are reels of, of terrible something. bad uh, recordings yeah. of, of us doing some of this stuff but some of it's genius and uh, um, that was a really important part of my New York experience and probably saved me from uh disappearing because it was um uh there was I couldn't get another I couldn't get a legit agent for theater and film and television to save my life. I this was my way in was to do something creative and keep myself entertained, try to do commercials even that with a really solid resume from DC, nobody really cared up here. I couldn't get an audition. I wanted to go back and uh, there was a question I meant to ask earlier. Mm-hmm. When you do a voice reel, mm-hmm. what's on that, what's on a voice reel? Well, it depends on the reel. Uh, if you're doing a commercial reel, uh, it, it should sound like a bunch of different commercials. Just a bunch of reads, basically. Yeah, I mean, you, you would either have somebody record it for you, but then add some sound effects and music that make it sound like it was a real commercial. Yeah, yeah. And once you do enough commercials, you take those and you put them together. And the idea is, of course, to show a range of your abilities um, without going too far outside what your natural voice sounds like. Right. You know, I can do a lot of different voices. Did you ever have to do like a reel for cartoon voices? Yeah, there's an animation reel as well that I put together on my own. I don't have, I hadn't had any animation on my reel until recently that was actual jobs. Yeah. So I figured out funny voices that I did and I wrote yeah, It seems like it would be perfect actually for animation to be I honest. I do a little bit of it. I, there's not a lot of it in New York City but there's uh, uh, enough uh, out there that I'm able to you know, I have an L.A. agent now as well that sends me out of that stuff. Yeah, I, I'm going to get to that New York-L.A. split. Yeah, that's in a crazy a, thing. In a second. Um, so, <clears throat> did you did you find that you had a break into the into the larger, I don't want to say legitimate business, but into the, the non-like theater back into television or film or something? Or Yeah, it was a weird... Um, <clears throat> the Red Room stuff was my was the thing that got me uh, the most uh, attention. And it wasn't getting attention from the right people, (laughs) unfortunately. A lot of friends, a lot of family, a lot of Mm -hmm. friends of friends who knew me from that. Oh, yeah. But what it did was I was very ambitious. You know, I was not here to sit on my butt uh, 
drink a beer on the way to the Yankee game, as people do. <laughs> Open containers. <laughs> um, Call I'm, back to, to pre-podcast yes. conversation. I, I was uh, I was very ambitious, so uh, I took that buddy of mine who moved up with me, and we started writing more material together. And then we started putting shows together of our favorite material. Uh, his name's Joel Jones, and so we did Kravitz and Jones, and we... <laughs> That's we, like an old-school comedy it team. It was an old-school comedy team, and most <laughs> of our stuff was very not edgy. Funny, not edgy. Yeah. Uh, a lot of parody stuff, a lot of musical stuff, um, which I like to do. So we started creating shows, and then we revamped the show and do it again with different pieces or better pieces and start inviting agents, which none of them came. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually... Uh, that all built up into a pretty solid hour and a half, which which ridiculous. Maybe even hour forty five. The sketch show should be like seventy five minutes. Right. We were doing like an hour and a half with an intermission. It was, like a, it was yeah, silly. It's a Beethoven Symphony. We didn't know any better, <laughs> but there was good stuff in there. Right. Right. Um, Over programming is is something I think that you grow out of. You want to like throw everything at the board, but yeah, once you, you know start what? going to these things. Yeah. You start going, I don't want to sit here for that long. No, dude. I don't want to. I, I, you know, I play the clarinet, and I don't want to hear more than like an hour tops. Exactly. I'll just get out of there. When I you're going hear. to a plane, it's like, guess what? It's 90 minutes and no intermission. People are like, well, don't you feel like you're getting cheated for no the money? Way. No, I want to see it and go. Yeah, <laughs> I'm much. totally. No intermission is awesome for me. Oh, I went to see a, a, a play recently, and they said, um, it's an hour and 45 minutes. And I said, great. And they said, first act. The second oh, yeah, act's yeah, an hour yeah, and ten. Yeah, yeah. I was like, no, you can't do this, but I was already committed. This, have you ever seen an opera over at the Met? No. Dude. That's where it's... Well, yeah. that, in, in you regular, know what you're in for in those things. Yeah, and in regular orchestra, if you go over two and a half hours, it's overtime. Yeah. If you have a, a two and a half hour performance in the Met, it's like a fucking vacation. Mm. It's like the shortest operas clock in at two Yeah, and but half. when those were written, what else, what else did people true. have to do? <laughs> you had an afternoon to blow. Yeah, they got a yeah. whole afternoon... Um, yeah, so I started writing that stuff, and that stuff became our ticket. Um, of course, we couldn't get anybody in New York to see it. We did it three or four different performances or times, and we did several performances. Sold out. Lot of buzz. A lot of buzz, but none in the right places. Yeah. So we, in 1998, it's only a few years after I moved here, and moved here in 95. So in... Uh, in late 98, I decided we should go to L.A. with it and just put up three performances there just to show friends. See right. what happens. Yeah, well, just to, like, I knew an agent out there I'd met during one of my industrials <laughs> that right. I was doing. Yeah. It was a touring industrial for <laughs> Canon Copiers. Hey, now. But a friend Live of mine... Live performances available. Yes, and a friend of mine asked me to... If I had anything to uh, perform at her open mic, she's like, oh, you're in town. Do you want to perform something at my open mic? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I did a lot of musical pairing back then. And uh, I wrote uh, a, a song called The Kosher Cowboy about the first Jewish cowboy. And I wrote, I also at that time had a, a parody of what was then a very popular song, which was Alanis Morissette's You Ought to Know. Yeah. And you know that song's about somebody who uh, <clears throat> um, is mad at her ex-boyfriend who, yeah. you know, has left her and, you know, she's crucified. Oh, yeah. Well, I wrote kind of the answer song, which was about the guy who's like, listen, 
Um, we had one date about three years ago. <laughs> you went down on me in a theater. And uh, I was really shocked. Uh, if the lights had gone down and the usher wasn't standing there, it would have been better. Um, but you've been stalking me now for three years. And uh, I named the song You Ought to Knock. <laughs> that was so I performed that and that went over really well yeah. and uh, you, you know who that song's about though right I mean oh no who I knew, I knew this at one time who was it fucking Dave Coulier from Coulier, Full House right, 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 that's right. like Coulier. it ruins All everything people. for like, me oh you know? jeez <sighs> Did he do like his crazy grandpa voice? Yeah, while he was exactly. <laughs> All right. Oh, Sorry. so so then uh, uh, I got an agent out. Of, I, I an agent was interested out in LA. So they I said, saw that performance. Do, yeah, I said yeah. let's go. So I knew this agent. She said, if you ever come out and do something again, let me know. All right. So I came. I said, I got this show. So it was mainly for our friends out there and for this one agent mm-hmm. to see, and she saw it and immediately got on the phone and called um, these casting people who were also involved in the Aspen Comedy Festival, which was the big national comedy festival at the time, and said, I got this hot act, you've got to see it. And they came out, and then they called us and said, or a couple of them came out and said, can you do a special performance for the judges of the Aspen, because we're making decisions this week. We've been looking all year for things, we're making decisions this week, I think they should see you. Can you add a performance on Saturday at three o'clock? Because we got to go to the improv right after that. And we were like, uh, "Yeah, uh, yes, of course." <laughs> Called all our friends, said, "Free tickets, free show." Yeah, show up and and buzz it up a little bit. And uh, we uh, pretty much got invited right there to the Aspen Comedy Festival. Nice. Um, so we were living in New York. Took this show out. Didn't know anything about anybody. And. Uh, we went to Aspen that March and performed at the Aspen Comedy Festival. And that was suddenly from doing your own stuff where you're changing your own costumes, you're putting up the lights, you're adding the sounds. Suddenly you're given like a crew, you're guaranteed a house of 250 people three times. And those people, room. And those people include... Um, the cast of SCTV who was in town, every development executive in L.A., mm-hmm. head of every network in L.A., uh, Bernie Brillstein, Brad Gray, you know, big-time people. Yeah. We didn't know who any of them were. Right. We didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. But that's what we were performing for and getting standing ovations. You know, our stuff was solid. It yeah. was really solid stuff, and we became. Kind did you were you doing the hour and forty five? No, did you, no, like, no. You did like they didn't a cut down to half an minute. hour. Uh. They wanted a half an hour. We gave them our best. Half so hour. if you'd already cut down to what you thought was a good hour forty five, then you felt like you had a killer thirty minutes, we right? We did have a killer thirty yeah. minutes. We had parodies of Saving Private Ryan. We did a musical parody of Saving Private Ryan. We did. We had a. We had another parody. <laughs> what, what, what was that called? Saving Private Ryan, uh, the oh, musical. Oh. But right. it was just exclamation point. Yeah, uh, yes, and it was uh, it was ridiculous. And we did um, we did a drama piece called "Waiting for Waiting for Godot." Right, told you about that one about two guys waiting to hear if they've been cast in "Waiting for Godot." Nothing to be done. Um, we had a really fun song, which was a parody of a uh, power ballad about two wrestlers. Who you know talk like this to each other? Listen, brother, I'm going to strangle you. You know, like yeah, an old yeah. wrestling, uh, TV wrestling guy. Yeah, sure. And then they go to commercial, and they both privately sing 
about how in love they are with the other one in a song called Unpin My Heart. And it's everything you want it to be. And uh, every wrestling parody, yeah. every wrestling pun you want is in there. And it got it got a lot of attention. Yeah, so yeah. Um, then that's when it first hit me that, oh, we should we should come to L.A. So that's when New York, you know, without an agent in New York, that's when it hit me that that's a move I had to at least attempt. So did you move out to L.A.? I moved out to L.A. pretty soon after that. I kept the place here because I was uncertain. I was just going to do like three months and see what it was like. Mm. And that was a... Um, that was a wake-up call. I mean, I finally had an agent. I wasn't a great agent. And at Aspen, I was approached by a lot of, you know, bigger agencies and bigger management companies. And I turned them all down because I was loyal to my little agent who mm-hmm. got me to Aspen, which was fine. Uh, it's admirable. I mean, It's it... admirable, but I'm not sure it was the right business move. Yeah. Um, that being said, I was in L.A. suddenly. And um, with no knowledge of the business... And uh, uh, just going, okay, now what? Now what yeah. do we do? Uh, I didn't. There are seasons, of course, in L.A. There's the season where they cast pilots. Right. There's a season where they develop. Is things. that now? Because I saw something on your it's, Facebook page yeah. about oh, pilot season. Pilot, se- pilot seasonal affect disorder? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is now. It's just ending. Uh, is that a, I want to ask you about that in a second. Let's, let's keep it, it is ending right about now. Yeah, yeah. But this is about the time I moved out to L.A. ready for things to happen. Right. <laughs> At the end of casting season. Yeah. yeah. So it was a very uh, difficult time to move out. Uh, but development season was upon us. and uh, But we didn't know that. Hmm. We just knew that we were... Uh, we just knew we were at a place where development people wanted to meet us. And we had a very bad agent, like I said. And we said to the agent, what do we say? And what he should have said was, okay, you go in and you say, here's our sitcom idea. He's the dumb guy. I'm the smart guy. We go back to college and blah, blah, blah. And here's how it all falls out. Here's another idea. We have these five ideas. Yeah. But instead we went in and they would say, so what do you want to do? And we were told by our agent, just be yourselves. So we were like, oh, you know, we just want to, whatever you want, direct, act, write, you tell us. Nobody wants to. Nobody wants to build a house with you in L.A. They right. want you to build a house for them right. that they can tear down so you can rebuild it. That's pretty. And much they can make works. money off of every step of that operation. Absolutely, and then throw it to the curb when they're done. <laughs> so we answered incorrectly yes. because we didn't know and we didn't have anybody telling us what we should do, mm. which was a real shame because we were in a, a real catbird seat. Yeah, in you that had situation. a good position. We were in great position. Yeah, but we didn't know. So that wave kind of crashed and burned. And that's uh, that was a real wake up call for yeah. me there too. But, so, you know. but did you stick it out out there, or did you come back to the city? Uh, I did stick it out. I went. We came back and forth a lot, um, but I I got very again. You know, these circumstances happen when you're pursuing things. I think I got very lucky again. I got out there, and that wave crashed and burned. We didn't know what we were doing, um, and then. Uh, I was talking to my agent. I'm like, well, I really want us to be on a television show regularly. And he said, no, 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 no. This is how it works. You do a very small parts, like one line. And then you start knowing casting directors. Then you start getting like full scenes or maybe multiple scenes. And then you get like what's called top of show, which is the guest star, that the main guest star yeah, of the show. And you right. get paid decently for that. And then you get some pilot auditions uh, that might you might test, which means you're performing for the network the final audition before you get the role and then eventually you'll get the part and I remember thinking I don't want to do that I don't want to go through that mess yeah. 
And it just so happens that, let's see, I moved there in March, April. And then in August, I got an audition for uh, a guest star on a show called The Practice. And so I auditioned for it. And I got the part. And then, as uh, David Kelly, the creator, is known to do, he started writing for the character more. And I spent the next two years pretty much exclusively doing the practice. Um, as That's a so nice regular. gig, right? I mean, it was a great gig. But I learned a lot. Like, even before that gig came up, I you know, this is the lesson of L.A. when you learn about L.A. When, and the... Uh, the language of L.A. is the lie. It's the grease in the wheels. People have to lie. But, okay, so... That's what they do, right? All right. So, I had an audition. My first audition in L.A. when I first moved out there was a, a, a pilot. And I auditioned for the pilot. And my agent said, uh, let me find out how you did. She called me and says, you're the one. They want you. And I'm like, really? Yep, you just have to go through one more audition they got to bring a couple other guys in because they have to have a couple people to right. look at. But you're the one they totally want. And I didn't get the part, of course. And I was really depressed about it. I'm like, how did that happen? I was the one. Right. She told me I was the one. And <laughs> I talked to a producer friend of mine. He's like, oh, you didn't buy that. You, <laughs> you didn't really. You can't believe one. anything that anybody uh, says in this business. Even the good things. Yeah. And it was a real life Just, lesson. You just take everything in the business of L.A. as not face value. Not the truth. Until the contract is signed mm. and the check is in your hand. Mm-hmm. Then it's like, oh, well, that's real. I can cash that. Yes. Everything else, I treat as complete nonsense. <laughs> they could say, you're great. You're going to get this role. And I go, yeah, okay. Hey, this character is going to recur, no doubt. Right. Yeah, okay. Okay. When it recurs, I'll, I'll believe that. I'll appreciate it when it happens. Or, yeah, I don't think you're going to get this one. All right, we'll see when when it's cast. Yeah, by some with somebody else, then I'll buy that. But right. I don't buy anything. You just can't can't buy it. <laughs> but I don't bemoan that. It's not like I, I I don't begrudge that. I mean, it's it's that's the way that business has it's to. It's a work. well-honed yes uh, sort of I would call it um, um, evolution. It's been a natural progression of Hollywood since the. Teens and twenties. There's a right? great book about by a producer out in Hollywood. The, the title of the book is "Hello, He Lied," because that pretty much sums it up. Yeah. So um, let's talk about uh, pilot season. Yeah. What is is that? Just like audition after audition after audition. Oh, I certainly wish it was that. Unless you're 23 with big boobs, it's not that at all. It's... We could like we could take care of half of that equation. Yeah, exactly. The um, yeah, pilot seasons changed over the years. It, it, there used to be a lot more going on. There's there's less going on now because television has kind of broadened out, and there doesn't seem to be one specific season where all channels are casting all their pilots. Yeah. Um, pilot season was based around the whole schedule of television was based around auto sales originally because autos were coming out with their new models in September, and they wanted to advertise those models huh. for the next year, so they would. In, combine them with new television shows. I did not know that. And that's the way they advertise it. So, new television shows hit in September, right? That's when they all come out, usually. I mean, it's changed now, but it used to be that. So, September was the goal. In order to do that, you have to have scripts by December to cast them January, February, to audition them in February, March, 
to you know or to uh, not to audition but to to create them in February, March, April, then to narrow them down by May when you present your slate. Yeah. That's going to now go into production for September. And there's all these pieces of that puzzle that went into that, so it was very specific timing. You could even time it to now's when they are casting comedies, now's when oh, they're I casting see. dramas. That's become more of a mess because, you know, FX and AMC are gonna do pilots when they want to do pilots. Mm-hmm. HBO is gonna do when they want to do it. And now Netflix and Netflix yeah. and Hulu and mm-hmm. Amazon, they're gonna do it whatever schedule they feel fit. They could wait two, three years between seasons right. for these things, as they do. So Pilot season was is mainly focused still on <clears throat> the big networks, and um, even then, it's getting a little old. The uh, Fox had actually said that they're not going to do it anymore, although they did a little bit. Um, but ABC, NBC, CBS, they still have a pretty good run. But when you look at what's on their channels, there's they don't pick up very many shows. Yeah. They've got a lot of reality. Mm-hmm. Well, you know how many competition singing competition shows? I do you just need, feel right? like it's played out so hard. I don't even know how those are on the air anymore. What's crazy is I used to have actors. I, I hate when actors talk about those shows and how much they love those shows because I'm like, do you not understand that that hour of television right. is gone for you now? And it's like it's like the <laughs> guys going. It. It's like the guys going. Hey, you know what? I love it when people take bread out of my mouth. I just lost that job down at the plant, but those cool... Let's go watch those machines. They're great. <laughs> Look at those things move. I'm just going to watch those all day. Yeah, we used to have the... Uh, we used to have the Grace Papaya, and now it's a Lululemon, but them pants... Them pants, They man, fit like you wouldn't believe. It feels like they spent a lot of money on them, but they, you know... So, I, I'm <clears throat> fascinated. I, I literally know nothing about, like, the end of your business, which is auditioning mm-hmm. for things um, can you just like give me a cliff notes of how like do you hear from that from your agent hey there's this audition for whatever and you just go or you want to know how uh, we humiliate ourselves on a daily yeah basis? and then what it's like to like you know you show up or they're like what eight other guys <clears throat> sitting around I mean you know, um, it's very specific I think it's different for television than it is for theater different for theater uh, than it is for commercials right I would, that's all stuff that very very different act. so um, commercials happen more often because there's a lot more things going on um and they might see, depending on which coast you're on, uh, they see less people in New York than in L.A., depending on um, just the way the nature, the whole thing is, the whole thing works. Uh, in New York, it's very contained. In L.A., almost anybody can put themselves up for a commercial, and if you look right and you're in the union, or n- not necessarily in this anymore, uh, you can get an audition for commercials. Because um, it's about a look as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so commercials and voiceovers, they'll see a lot of people, 50, 60, 70 people. Are you hanging out in the same room together? or <clears throat> You get called at different times. Yeah. So you might, yeah. I mean, I've, I have a, a nice group of friends that I compete with for jobs all the time. Hey, what's up? Totally. It's I totally friendly, hope you don't get this job. Or you go, I hope you do. You need it. I right. know you're going through a hard time. Yeah. You know, and, and, but you... you you don't want to. It's like poker. You could be friends with the guy, but to not do your best yeah, is not. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not really fair. So it's play. not cool for the other guy either, because it's like, what kind of respect do you have right. for the guy that you're going to like? Well, you're everybody lay off? needs the job. Right. That's a face. Oh, yeah. Everybody needs it in some way. Right. So whether one guy needs it a little more or not, you never say, "I hope I beat you for this." You actually, I've cheered when other friends of mine have gotten work, even if it's something I've auditioned mm. for, because I like them. And right. I, and there's a lot of stuff happening, so there'll be something else. 
um, <clears throat> that's that situation. Theater is a whole other world, you know. Uh, well, let's go to television because you're still in a small. Commercials are in a small room. You okay. Know? You might have uh, members of the advertising agency there. You might have just a casting director. You might have clients. God forbid, you know, the brand themselves, because none of these people are highly creative. If you, <laughs> if you, they say they want you to be a doctor for the audition. It's not good enough for some of these people to come in with wearing a suit. You have to be wearing a lab, lab coat, coat, right? Because they just can't see you as that role. Mm. I don't see him as a doctor. I see him as a lawyer, but not a doctor. You put the white coat on. Oh, oh. doctor! No, <laughs> I, I wish you were kidding. Um, for television, it's a little less that. Um, television, you given you're given information ahead of time from your agent. You're giving you're given the uh, script, or at least your part of the script, called the sides. How how long are those usually? <clears throat> Depends on the role. Sometimes, oddly, they want to see you do everything that's in the script. Sometimes, so sometimes it'll be eleven pages of mm-hmm. sides. Sometimes it'll be one page, right. depending on the role. Um, and you go in and you perform, and you get a little direction, and you perform again. Um, every actor's got twelve to fifty horror stories in their back pocket of. When they went in and the guy was eating their lunch or whether they're on the phone or they weren't paying attention. and I've had some just recently horror stories where I walk out and go, well, that was absurd. Yeah. What am I doing <laughs> walking in and giving you my, my talents because you don't appreciate them? Or people who make you wait an hour and a half when mm-hmm. you're like, I don't have an hour or an hour and a half. Right. Um, <clears throat> it's very frustrating. Theater, it's a whole other world because you're going to have a lot of people in the room going to have the director you're going to have the producers you're going to have casting people you're going to have people reading with you that are other actors Mm -hmm. and the preparation because it's live stuff is going to be more uh it's going to be more preparation especially for the audition for the audition so you might put a lot more effort into uh creating the character Mm -hmm. or you know, you have to prepare music. You might have to have extra music backing, you know, with you just in case they go, well, do you have anything that's more upbeat? I see. More contemporary? Would you bring, like, piano music with you? And the, yeah. <clears throat> the player yeah. just reads it down and you just do it? Yep, and there's ways, there's very specific ways you need to learn how to talk to your accompanist and accompanist that's waiting there. Treat them with respect. Yeah, yeah. Specific ways to have the music laid out so it's easiest for them. Mm-hmm. Ways to talk to them about what you'd like them to do without uh, being condescending. It's amazing how much those little the little professional touches that you pick up via uh, experience like that make an enormous difference. And into... talking to other, and talking to accompanists. Right. Who are like, oh, I hate when actors do this. Right, 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 you know, right. Give me the tempo once. I don't need you to give me the tempo mm-hmm. four times. I'm a professional. Please say thank you at the end. Please come and get your book. Don't let me make me come and give it to yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, because that rubs off on the actual other people auditioning you. They're aware of how you're treating other people, too. It is amazing, though, how we have to sort of codify rules in our professions that are really just basically being nice to other people and it being is. a polite person when you arrive. But it's a stressful environment yeah. because there's yeah, yeah. it's a flood. It is a flood of people. For very few positions, um, and they don't really they don't really have to care <laughs> yeah. that much. If you're it's lucky, they treat you with respect. And there's most people do, especially in this city. I've had very few experiences where people um, are disrespectful, but it happens, and um, you know it happens a lot. And you say, "Oh, I can complain, or I could walk out," but 
this is a tough business. You need the business to work. is what it is. Yep. So you're not going to change it, like by making a statement at that point. Nope, they're just going to forget about you. <laughs> yeah, or even worse, not forget about you yeah. and <laughs> never call you again. <laughs> right. Make sure that you're not the guy that they call. Exactly. So it sounds like the the audition process for live theaters are pretty intense, uh, or, or certainly is, in, in it's levels. It's actually of... friendlier. I find um, it's the most intense for preparation, mm-hmm. but theater people have a great respect for one another. Uh, and when you're on a set of a movie or a television show, you can always tell the theater people. You know, they're the ones who are going to be friendly and treat each other the nicest or talk to you mm-hmm. and not dismiss you. Uh, and you can tell people who do mostly television who don't haven't had a background in the theater uh, because of how they behave. And uh, it's not necessarily mean. It's just not personal. It's not friendly. Uh, I've noticed that over and over. Even things like I was doing a, an episode of a show out in L.A., last week and uh, I had my my 12 year old son with me and uh, we were leaving and we were chased down by the uh, well first there were the director was there and she was great I really liked working with her and so I said to her listen I really appreciate working with you not just because of your talent uh, just as an actor I appreciate it but I, I loved how you talked to everybody you were so respectful to everybody including the they're background actors, extras, right? Mm-hmm. And instead of her going, those guys, those guys need to step back. She would say, um, "Those actors back there, sir, would you please step back one step? Call them actors because right. they are actors, right. even though they're and just address them class. directly rather than obliquely." Right. Yeah. So there were things like that that I just thought were classy. Right after that, I had a uh, a wardrobe person come and chase me down on the way to the car and say, "Sir, sir, I'm sorry. I just want Jason. I just wanted to say." Thank you so much. And she talked to my son. She goes, your father hung up his clothes after he got out of costume. He hung them up. And I'm like, well, of course you do. Leave them in a pile? Well, in theater, you never leave them in a pile. You're going to use them them again, right? Well, no, it's all because the wardrobe person has to want to go home, too. Right. So the more work you make for them, the Mm -hmm. longer they have to stay there. So it's like, well, you treat everybody with respect. I'll hang up my clothes. Right. Because you do. Yeah. But I guess you don't, because people don't. Because it wouldn't be it was, a big deal for her to chase you down, right? But I think theater people are really much more attentive to that, <laughs> um, those details. So the theater auditions, you feel at least the casting director is going to respect me being here, and it's great. I, I like auditioning for theater. Uh, auditioning for television is a little bit more difficult, because they have a little less respect for you sometimes. What about film, like movies? Film is... I don't audition for that much film because film has kind of diminished in the world, you know? Since the advent of Netflix and all these things, um, the only, you know... Back to, like, The Wire and Sopranos. Yeah, which are basically an hour-long movie every week. You have... uh, Or 24 or Homeland, one of those Mm -hmm. things. So that's where people are getting their... their, A lot of their drama and and their personal drama, too. The Mad Men and stuff like that. So... The big movies that get made are either the Adam Sandlery big broad comedies, or they're uh, big blockbusters like Captain America. Right. That's what you see in the theaters now, and so that world has greatly shrunk, mm-hmm. which has made television. Television has expanded, but it's expanded and flattened out. So you get you get less. You know, for an act as an actor, you get paid less. There might be more to do, but you'll have to do more of it in order to make the same living you used to make, hmm. just because the way the contracts have changed. And uh, and the fact that movie people, who are not doing movies now, have decided, 
they want to do television. Right. What a great life, you know? You do a few months out of the year, you're done, and, you know, you probably stay in one place. And then the people who used to do the lead roles in television are now doing right. the guest star spots. Right. The people who used to do guest stars are doing one-day spots. Right. And it just kind of flattens out. I see. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's an interesting business. But, I yeah, I mean, auditions are a, a psychotic ridiculous thing that it's like if you have to learn as I think who said this recently was it Brian Cranston I think it was he went out and said something about auditions are just another place to show your work you know what I mean Mm -hmm. to do your work to really enjoy giving a performance and if you can treat it that way where it's like yeah today I get to go in and perform for these people right that's great. Instead of everything is on the line right now. And my entire yeah. child's existence is on the line yeah. right now. Will he be, will he have a bar mitzvah or not? It's based oh. on whether or not I get this job oh, on Rizzolian Isles. You yeah, know there's I mean? a similar, there's a really similar vibe in high level, like orchestral auditions and stuff. It's, yeah. it's very weird and a very intense highly, you know, rarefied type of thing. Well, the big audition, though, the big scariest audition is, in my world, is the pilot audition, the final pilot audition. Because you have to go through so many hoops. So many people have to agree that so, you're I'm the sorry, one. let me back up. Yeah. So pilot audition is different in what way? Um, well, it's auditioning for a television show, but as a regular in a television I show. I see. So you audition for the casting director, and then you audition for the producers, and maybe the director... And if that goes well, you get to audition for uh, what's called the production company. Uh, and if you that goes well, you get to audition, be one of a handful of people, maybe three or four people. For the be, same role. To be brought to the network level. And you go into the hallowed halls of the network right. where all these people sit in a room. We're talking... Well, I mean, the, in the producer session as well, there's probably about 20 people sitting there. And then if you get past that, you get to go to another room, usually a screening room with terrible lighting. Why they don't just record you? Because mm-hmm. you're going to be on television. Right. You know, I don't know, but they want you to do it live. So they have a, a room full of humorless people who get to you know decide your fate, and you have to be there with two other guys who you know are sweating it the same way you are, <laughs> trying to play it cool, and... Go in and do your best. Yeah. Um, and right before, because of the nature of... This is what's crazy about it. Because of the nature of uh, cont- contract negotiations, you have to sign your deal for what will be your payments for the next two years, at least two years. What you're agreeing to get paid before that last audition. Because if you do it after, then you've got them over a barrel. Right. You picked me... Now we're going to negotiate. They don't want that. Yeah. They want to negotiate the, if you get it, wow. you'll do this. Okay. I had no idea that was the... <laughs> and so they do that negotiation almost up until the point you're auditioning. So when you go to your network audition, you walk in the room and the casting director, who's very excited that you're there because now you're making her look good or him look good, hands you a manila envelope. Inside the manila envelope are five to seven copies of your contract that is telling you what you will get paid. I'm sorry. It tells you what you will not be getting paid if you fuck this up. Right. Right? So that's what you have to do before giving your best audition is sign pieces of paper with money at the numbers on it. 
And I last time I had to do one of those, I told my agent, I said, can you have them cover up? I don't want, first of all, you negotiate without telling me. You know what my rates yeah. are. I want you to get as close as you can to that. And if it's a bad deal, I want you to tell me don't do it. But if it's fine with you, it's fine with me. Then I want you to have them put a piece of paper over everything that covers a number. Just leave a signature line. And I will sign that. I'll just sign, 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 and give and it back to you. Seeing the number freaks you out. I don't want to see the number. Yeah. Because if you said, if I said, okay, um, you've gone this far, and there's a couple other guys. If you move forward, if right before you go in this room, before to do this audition, yeah. if you do well and they give you that role, you're going to be making $35,000 a week for 22 weeks of the year <laughs> if it goes well for the next five years. And for the pilot, you'll get double that. So um, that will be what happens if it goes well. Oh, if it doesn't go well, you this is nothing. meaningless. You get oh, nothing yeah, and yeah, you go back in the pile yeah. for maybe another year if you get lucky. Oh. How cruel I wouldn't play is well. that? No one can. I would not play well. No. How, how cruel is that? It's brutal. So I just feel like, you know... It sort of takes the art out of it. It sucks the art, art out of... Well, okay. <laughs> you know, exactly. You're trying to do creative work that right. is loose and relaxed and shows them, look, I can do this. I'm your guy. You know, and I got this on lockdown, no problem. Yeah, and and if you want to go with someone who looks like me, I'm your guy. Right. You know, but you know, if you you to do that, to be in that mindset and not think about it's very difficult. Oh, I can't. No. So you have to kind of write it off. I mean, I wish that I had a lot of money before I went in for those things. That oh, way, so I'd be like, give a yeah, shit. I yeah, give a crap. Yeah. But the more money that you have, the less auditions you probably have to take, right? I mean, it, it, do yeah, someone like Brad Pitt doesn't have to audition for like no. a fucking movie? Right? I don't think he auditions for anything. Right. I mean, I mean now maybe just, I think some, he has his own company. If he has some director that's like, I just want to read you for this to make sure we both like each other. That's fine. Yeah. You can do that. Maybe he does that every once in a while, but you know, it's he's not going to be up for a role with twenty other other guys. No, but not anymore. But I mean, you're also. Look, this business is this business. I had a friend who did a television show. He created a television show, and he was freaked out because he had a role of an older guy who was like the coroner who was recurring, not even a regular role, just kind of showed up every few episodes. Mm -hmm. And he had Hal Holbrook sitting in with him, and he had Bella Lugosi, not Bella Lugosi, um, um, the guy who played Bella Lugosi. Um, Martin Landau. Yeah. And he had Martin Landau there, and he had these people sitting on his couch, and he's like, who am I? Right. These guys are like coming in to talk to me to look for a job. Some of them are reading, some of them don't want to read. That's fine with me. Right. But I have to make a decision between These Martin guys? Landau and Hal Holbrook? How cruel is that that Hal Holbrook is not in a position where right. it's just like, get me Hal Holbrook. Right. Um, so, out of like TV... Uh, we're, let's leave commercials out of it. So, out of TV and like uh, live theater... Is there a medium that you prefer to work in? I mean, are you, do you feel more at home in the theater, being that that's where you started out? Mm. Or? Um, I get the question asked a lot. I, I think I, I'm only satisfied Damn. if I'm doing a lot of... Uh, I'm doing some of both. Mm. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. I like doing live theater. I really enjoy being in a space that is dedicated to that uh, and performing in front of an audience and getting instant gratification. I like doing improv and getting that kind of feedback and, and being able to kind of go up and, and be really live, like with nothing prepared. Um, but I love being on a set. 
I love being on a sound stage, being in a studio, on a lot. Those are all, or even behind a microphone. I love that idea of like, I guess I just, I need a little bit of all of it. And, and it's all very different skill sets in a way. Doing live theater is an incredibly different skill set. And that was a big learning curve for me as well. Um, than doing something in front of camera. Can you, like, say why? Yeah, well, sure. I mean, it's smaller. Everything is smaller on film. Um, and it really depends on where you, uh, where the camera is. How close the camera is to your face is mm-hmm. how big your acting has to get or not get projection or not projecting. Um, Whereas on stage, that's sort of a constant. Yeah, I mean, depending on the size of the theater, you yeah. might have to project more or be, you know, have have uh, larger movements. But I remember when I first started doing uh, television regularly. You know, what happens is when they when they block a scene, when you're working on a scene, you'll work on it with the director for five minutes, and then they'll call in the crew to mark down where you stood. So you're doing the scene again, and there's some assistant camera person with a piece of colored tape, mm-hmm. kind of. Putting, marking where your feet are so they can get focus marks and lighting and stuff like that. And uh, I remember working with this one woman and I said, uh, I said, consistently you have like two marks and I have like eight or ten or twelve marks. She goes, well, because I learned that in, on tape or on film, you don't have to move. The camera can move. So the sense of movement that right. you think you need to create is being done for you. So you have to do less. And it really is about just doing less. Hmm. Acting is on film, especially when the camera's close, is really about thinking. You don't have to create anything except think it. You don't have to move or anything. What is rehearsing like uh, for, say, a movie or or even television in television I assume there's less rehearsal than television usually the rehearsal happens uh, if, when we're talking about stuff that is uh, shot like a film like a television an hour long drama right. as opposed to a sitcom which has multiple cameras right. if it has multiple cameras you're going to rehearse all week and then perform on the Friday do you do like, like three runs or it's not uh, when you tape it. Yeah, do you do no, a run they, and then hit spots again? You or? do run. They'll they'll change a line. They'll change a mark. They'll redo it. They want to get another shot of this. But you won't redo the whole episode again. Or no, not, not you don't usually shoot the or, episode or, in one anyway. You right, shoot okay. it scene by scene. All oh, right, all right. And a half an hour sitcom can take probably three to five hours to shoot totally, um, top to bottom. But uh, it's kind of an incredible. Uh, it's its own animal that's a whole other discussion and let me just ask as a total Uh outsider say you're doing something that's like on TV now you film an episode that Friday that's three to five hours how long until that's edited and on on TV it depends Uh, it can they usually can do it pretty quick but uh, you know I shot something in September that's going to be airing tomorrow so Mm -hmm. in April so that's because that's how they've edited all the shows that season by now uh, to air but the season hadn't started yet. Now, the television season for them is starting. So they just started their initial episode of this season like two weeks ago. Right. So it's a sl- sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's fast. I've seen stuff get turned around in three to four weeks. Um, depends on, on what the network is requesting, basically. So um, we were going back to <clears throat> when you do rehearsals for television... Oh, for television dramas, usually they rehearse very quickly. They rehearse 
Do you rehearse on the stage or is it usually... On the set, yeah. yeah. It's not about really getting the character down at this point. It's really like, okay, we know you you have a character because we know you. we auditioned you. Mm-hmm. So you know what you're doing. These guys know what they're doing. So just it's going to be about where you stand and where you move and what kind of tone we want to create. Tone and everything else is on you because you're the guy and we hired you to be this person. Right, and the director might say take a pause before you respond to her in that or you know that's got to have a lot more weight when you say that mm. you know you get notes about that but like as opposed to like live theater where direction is maybe a lot more specific I, well it just you rehearse for weeks in order to really kind of, like a minute per or like an hour per minute of stage time or something oh, like I don't I know heard, it depends well it depends on if you're doing theater in Washington DC you might get four five weeks of rehearsal in New York you might get three because it's costly mm-hmm. and you only have a certain amount of space for a certain amount of time um, in summer stock theater you get a week to put something up and you, so, but you show up prepared for that it's you yeah. generally not like hey here's your script you got a week you know you, usually not no right? but uh, it could be I mean <laughs> but in rough. summer stock but that's what theater people like the show must go on mentality yeah uh, but yeah so that when you're doing a drama you rehearse for you rehearse a couple of times you run through it, you move a little bit, you do this, the director might say, can you just start facing this way so that we can have it over her shoulder onto you for this? Can you end up here? And then they block it, and then you go away, and they bring in stand-ins to be in your place while you go and get your makeup and mm-hmm. your clothes ready and prepare. And then the camera people and the lighting people will base their stuff off of your stand-in. And then... They'll call you to set when they're ready. And you just do it. You do it. Yeah, that's cool. So let me ask you about splitting your time between New York and LA. Um, I, I I see you here often. How often do you do you go to LA? Uh, it's hard with a kid to right. travel that's a an, lot. Let's add that because that was going to be actually the next part of my question. So yeah, let's add the twelve year old boy. Changes a lot that. of things having a kid. Yeah. Uh, well, the travel stuff is uh, strictly because. It's hard to make a living for me on one coast. Mm-hmm. You know, I live here in New York for a variety of reasons. I'm here and I have to live here and I like living here. Uh, and I find it a very creative town. Um, and though there's more television here than there used to be, uh, which is where you're going to make a living in this business, uh, the bulk of it is still in Los Angeles. And I have an agent that is on both coasts. And if they see something from me out there, they'll call me and they'll say, would you be interested in putting yourself on tape, an audition on tape uh, for this? Uh, usually it's an audition on tape, mm-hmm. or sometimes they offer me a role. Every once in a while I'll get an offer. And I'll, if I get the role, I'll go out and I'll perform. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're supposed to, you know, uh, the, the ultimate goal is for people to like fly you out and say, oh, we need that guy. But right, right. now the money's always so tight in this business that they're like, well, he'll have the part if he can fly himself here. Oh, wow, yeah. So, you know, as long as I end up in the black in the long run, I'm fine with that. Yeah. You know? um, but it used to be more of we'll we'll take care of the, the trip as well. Right, but now they're at the point where they're like, we don't need to go outside of this community. And if he wants right. to, I'll look at his tape, and if we like him, he'll just have to come out. If not, right. we'll spend the money, we won't spend the money on somebody else who lives here, <laughs> you know? Uh so, so do you find that because you have the, the son <clears throat> in the city that you have you you're, you find yourself to be more selective in the stuff that you take in LA or? Well, yeah, I mean it's got to pay well, yeah, okay. or pay decently, right? Um, 
So a lot of people, a lot of people who might be listening to this are students and such, and like you know, there's a there's a beauty in going to school for art, but at the end of the day, there is a ledger that you have to like yeah. fill out that you have to actually make money at your art to feed yourself and your family. If that's what you choose to do, no one said you have to do that. Right. You know, I okay. always say to people that. Uh, you know, my lesson in life for me, and which I have to remind myself all the time, is that no one asked you to do this business. No one said you have to do this as a business. You started, if you're like me, you started acting, you know, young, maybe a lot of people in high school or college, and they go, I really like this. I get a lot out of this, or I get a lot of attention, or I get a lot of whatever the need is that's mm-hmm. being filled. Or maybe you're just good at it, and you feel like this is my gift. And at that point, you basically, you have to please the teacher or the director in order to get into it. You have to, you have to get the role. That's the only person who has to say yes. Mm-hmm. The farther along you get, when you decide to make it a business, the more and more people stand in the way of you and the thing that you love. Right. Because they have to make a living too. Right. Actually. So then you've got uh, your agent, your manager, your casting director, your producers, directors, uh, network people, executives, um, and everybody has to agree that you're the guy. Right. But you can you can circumvent all that um, and do what you love at any time. You might not get paid for it. Right. You might not have an audience for it. Right. But you can do it. So the key is to always do it. Just do it whenever you can, even if it doesn't pay you anything right i mean don't give away your services to somebody who should be paying you yeah but you can always be doing what you love and you should and that's what people forget is we got into this because we love it and now we're asking people to pay us for it mm-hmm. that's a whole nother skill so you have to learn that skill right. uh, not many people offer that skill in college as that's a, for damn sure right. in many disciplines you don't get that skill at all and why i think going to maryland was a very lucky break for me is because i already was adept at like kind of making my own work and hustling mm-hmm. people who come out i know a lot of people who come out of conservatories who get a great education and a lot who work and a lot who don't and a lot who sit around waiting for the phone going i don't know what to do right i have an agent but my agent's not doing anything i don't know what to do and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, welcome to the world. Yeah. Everybody has that circumstance. Um, so you have to treat it like a business. And you have to figure out, you know, uh, how much of yourself to invest in the business and, and what you need to do to do everything you can to make your business work. And then the hard part is letting it all go and saying, well, I've done everything I can. Now all I can do is my art. Right. And that's a very difficult thing to do because you're always thinking, well, why isn't it working? Why isn't it working? How come it's not happening? And the reason it's usually not happening is because you're not doing the art. Right. You're trying to you're, you're trying to force the action in, a, in, in the wrong angle right. instead of just making something honest and truthful that you really believe in. There is a... I don't want to say it's karmic, but I think there's something to the idea that you put out an energy of creating... And something will come your way. I totally. You I still totally have to do that. all the work. It's still hard ass work. You still have to do the That's work. That's part of the art. For, well, I mean, the craft and the, see, art for me is the space where, like, the, the 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 pursuit of the perfection of your craft and the 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 purity of your intent kind of intersect. But the craft part of it is huge because somebody could be have a lot of beautiful things to say, but if 
if you can't understand what the fuck they're talking about, then what use is it? You have to have the chops to right, be and able... Right, and add that into the mix, the other hard part, which is you have to do your business. You know, you yeah. have to make sure as an actor that you have your audition materials prepared at any time. That you know, uh, you know, when I put myself on tape, I have a setup now where I, you know, I know where to, the, to string the sheet and put the light on and get the camera ready and how I'm going to edit it. That's a system that I have. Right. I, I, I pursue agents. I pursue managers when I need to. I know how to keep in touch with, and say thank you to people who've uh, cast me and things. Right. Um, you you, you got to know how to keep your, you know, get your reel together for people to see. Get mm-hmm. a website together. Get Just make sure your ducks are in order at all times. And you have to be ambitious that way right. as a business. Yeah. And you have to do your craft. And the problem with this business is... And have something to say. People either do their craft and go, I don't know what I'm doing with the business. Right. Or they get so caught up in the business they forget to do their craft. It's a tough balance. Yeah. Faux show. Well, I have just one more thing uh, to ask of you before uh, I let you go. And that is, I know you're a huge music lover. I know you sing and play yourself. I know you consume a lot of music, and I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you a very boring question, but one that I actually am interested in the answer to, and that is the typical desert island. You have five records that you can have, no others. I'm not sure I'll be able to get all five, but I I should definitely get a couple. Okay. I think... Three to five, then. Three to five. Yeah, yeah. Albums. Albums, Albums, not particular songs. Uh, One of them would be Astro Weeks. I have no idea what that is. Van Morrison. All right. I it's his. I, I don't know if it's his first album or not, mm-hmm. but it's definitely early and uh, a lot of live, very live instrument stuff, all done in very short time. Right. What's that? Again? Astral weeks definitely worth. Uh, all right. It's an oldie. I, I'm an oldie person. There's another one uh, I'll throw out that. Um, that you don't know, no one knows everything, but it's it's uh, Bob Geldof, who you would know from Live Aid and mm-hmm. Hometown Rats His and things like that. His daughter this. just died uh, yesterday. Exactly, right, Peaches. He had an album called um, The Vegetarians of Love. It's actually a series of albums uh, with a group called The Vegetarians of Bob Geldof and The Vegetarians of Love. The first album, which is that, that's the title. Uh, I listened to a million really? times over and over. Yeah. All right. I'll take that's again, another one. It's got a little. Cel- I have a, a tend towards the Celtic. I think that is a real Celtic, <laughs> a lot of Celtic instruments. Well, it's your Irish blood in you that's like really like that would be it. to the fore. All right, um, give me at least one more, man. Maybe something I've heard of before. Anything? Um. Well, I'll throw out Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. That's a uh, great album, of right. course. Um. I'm sure there's a Zeppelin album in there, but I, I know there's another one that I'm forgetting that I. Uh, Oh, you know, um, I'd say Radiohead's Kid A. Uh, you know I'm going to love that. I played through that a million times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a Ben Folds 5 album that I was particularly fond of. Which one? Whatever and Ever? I think it was the first one, actually. It was called Ben Folds 5, mm-hmm. uh, which was before Whatever and Ever. Um, I love whatever and ever amen. It's that I saw them album. live on Second Avenue uh, when <laughs> before whatever and ever came out. It was uh, right after Ben Folds Five, awesome. the first album came out, and I was so enamored of them. And they played songs off of whatever and ever would mm-hmm. hadn't come out. Yet. Uh, so then I, I was think like, Ben Folds has like he's got this 
melancholy sensibility that just hits me right in the middle of my chest. It's I really, agree. It's incredible. And I'm going to go right through real quick, see what's what's playing on my... Uh, <laughs> all right, all see right. See what's on this thing just by, oh, by artist here and see if there's anything that pops up here that I'm forgetting. Do you have a favorite film? Uh, do I have a favorite film? It, I, I, yeah, I have a couple of favorite films and they all tend to be parodies because I think those are brilliant. Um, Young Frankenstein. All right. <laughs> the first one and probably this is spinal tap is oh and that's then, one movie that i laugh at more every time i see it i laugh harder at it than i did the, the previous time yeah it's a rare a rare type of comedy yeah I, I, there's a lot of people that i like songs from that mm-hmm. i but I, and i don't know the whole albums like there's some springsteen that i could totally get into elvis costello that i could mm-hmm. totally get into um was that the Hold Steady that I just saw go You did see the Hold Steady. Nice. Love the Hold Steady. There's uh, there's some Beatles that I absolutely love. Oh, like, yeah. I, you know, I could probably live with Let It Be or the White Album. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, um, A Function of Memory by Christopher Grimes, available on OpenGRecords.com, is really like a... I thought that went without saying. <laughs> I was actually not going to bring that one up. It's just like I thought everybody had that one on their list. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh... Yeah, I think that that would those are that's a pretty good list. I think uh, maybe the police uh, uh, Zenyatta Mandata mm-hmm. or Synchronicity One or Synchronicity. I mean, um, uh, I'm trying to think of ones that I know the entire album uh, as opposed to just a song or two that I like. I love the new Beck. I, were you at the poker game when we had the argument over whether Beck sucks or not? I was there for that. Yes. Uh, oh, how about how about the? Um, I I probably choose uh, uh, the Who's uh, Meaty Bitty Big and Bouncy. It's Whoa, one of my favorites there too. That's a good that's one. going into also the obscure machine for oh, even the Who. It's good. It's good. Um, <laughs> the Who so, sell out for me is a, is a, is my favorite. That's a good one too. Or Who by Numbers. Yeah. Also. Yeah, I definitely would have some Who in there. I have to figure out which one. I love the Who because they overreach. They're not... It's like they want to be operatic, but they don't quite have the chops to pull it off. And that, yep. the, the degree of failure, I find, to be really like... <laughs> I also like, you know, there's 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 albums that come to mind that were very specific to an era. Like college for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I'd say my sophomore year of college was, uh, yes, uh, Starship Trooper. <laughs> you know, like that whole experience of like listening to Yes, that was mm-hmm. awesome. Or Moody Blues was in there at right. some point. Like I was listening to old Moody Blues. Um, yeah, I have a real wide, eclectic taste. Yeah, it sounds it. Um, but I, I tend to focus on songs rather than albums. Mm-hmm. Although there's a couple, you know, even there's... Um, uh, you know that whole Radiohead experience. There's like so many in that radio, or or even those um, are built built as album. I would like, say ideas, even though know. it's short. Weezer's Green album is yeah. like one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, too. but that's also an album that plays from beginning to end, and you it and really you're like, does. okay, now it, I it's I, like 36 minutes, but yeah. it, it does play. And you get the whole somewhere thing. between an EP and an LP. Exactly. Each song is like, here's an idea. Yeah. Now it's done. done. Yeah, it's a little less, little little more length than the Ramones, but not not by much. Uh, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I would have to put Miles Davis kind of blue and oh, right. okay. I was big heavily influenced by that that's into jazz yeah. that was a good introduction to jazz for me was that one boy it's a tough one for me no look you said you couldn't range. do five and you probably now came up with like ten, ten. Yeah. I appreciate it
All right, man. I appreciate you uh, coming hey, by and doing the podcast. It My was a pleasure. lot of fun, and uh, I hope we can uh, do it again. Listen, man, I'm an actor. Nothing I like better to talk about than me. <laughs> All right, man. Appreciate it.